Hi. Um, I'd like to talk about forgiveness and the impact that Jay's message a couple weeks ago made on me. I know it affected a lot of other people. Last Monday, I was standing out on my lawn taking down my Christmas decorations, and up pulls Mike, and he gets out of the car, and we're, st- we're talking about you know, the sermon, and then Tony comes from across the street, and they, Tony and uh, Mike were going out to lunch. Tony comes over, so the three of us are standing on my front lawn talking about you know, forgiveness and the impact of, of Jay's message. Now, I struggle with forgiveness. I um, have a father that abandoned me and a mother who is emotionally abusive. So, yes, I struggle with forgiveness. And the problem with it is you think you turn it over to the Lord. You think you're okay because it's, you know, it's, it's the thing to do, forgive. The Lord tells us to forgive. And then something triggers it again. You, know, you hear something or you see something, and it, it brings back those painful memories. So you're back to square one with forgiveness. Now, the thing that impacted me was forgiveness adversely uh, affects my relationship with the Lord. So it it, it became time for me to just forgive and and give it all over. And it's a day-to-day struggle, but now I understand the, the impact that unforgiveness has on your life. And the flip side of forgiveness is sometimes I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to forgiving myself. Uh, my, my mother, I, I prayed and witnessed and talked to her for decades. And she continued to mock and, and ridicule me for my faith. And then one day I was, I was visiting her in her apartment and she was talking about a neighbor holding her hand and asking her if she was saved. And I didn't want to get hurt again. I didn't want to engage in the conversation, so I blew it off. My mother died and I had no evidence that she ever accepted the Lord. So I tormented myself. I felt the guilt. I felt guilty. I failed. I failed. I was the only Christian in her life. I failed. And I was tormented for years over that. And then one day the Holy Spirit said, remember that conversation she was trying to start with you? I'm like, yeah. Uh, she was trying to tell me something. And when she died, I talked to the chaplain, and he said, yes, yeah, she was ready. But it took me years to come to that point where I was able to forgive myself and listen to the Holy Spirit to tell me, comfort me with these messages. So that the point is, forgiveness is, is a, it's a day-to-day struggle, but it does, get, it does affect your relationship with the Lord, so we can't let that happen. So if you have any, anyone still having unforgiveness, you can talk to me. I'm the expert on it now, I guess. <laughs> and uh, you know, thank you. Thank you, Arlene. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it takes a lot of boldness to share what she just shared, so I appreciate that. Um, I didn't get a chance to say beforehand, but one of the things that we're doing in 2018 is just <clears throat> um, spending some time just um, making sure that we highlight the work of God through His Spirit in the lives of our family so that you know, you get to hear maybe my, my perspective a little too often, um, but you don't often get to hear how God is moving and at work in all of us, and and that's true. And so we want to highlight that. So we thank, thank you, Arlene, for uh, being brave and bold and sharing what God's teaching you along the way. I'm sure it's had an impact on a lot of people. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you guys today. We are doing a series called The Gospel And... 
Um, and if you haven't been with us, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at various topics through the lens of the gospel. Um, when Paul talks about the gospel in Romans 1, he says that the gospel is the power to save, both for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And oftentimes we think of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as being something that saves us from a particular afterlife. So if, if I believe in Jesus, if I understand the good news, he died in my place, he took my sin upon himself, gave me his righteousness, and that means when I die, I get to go to heaven instead of hell. And we, we compress the good news down into a specific category, and we think of it only as applying to our afterlife and not to this life. But when the Bible talks about this good news, when Jesus talks about the good news, he proclaims liberty for captives. He proclaims sight to the blind. He proclaims healing to the sick, life to the dead. So it's not just in one category that we need to think about the gospel, but the gospel is really the lens by which we look at every category. And if we're not doing that, here's the reality. You're doing it with some other lens. You're looking at the world through some kind of lens, through some sort of filter, whether that's your political bent or your uh, Americanism or your family background or your ethnicity or your atheism or whatever it is. You're looking and you're making interpretive statements about how the world operates through some perspective. All of us do it. So, and, and what that means is you can't say that, one, you don't have a perspective, because you do, and two, you can't say that just because I hold the perspective, it means it's right and everybody else is wrong. The, the, only, the only saving perspective is the perspective of the good news. And so that's, that's what we're trying to wrestle with. What does it look like to put on a new set of lenses? So last week, we talked about the, the topic of comfort. And we talked about how God calls us out of uh, worldly comfort and into kind of a new understanding of comfort where we're able to, to um, shed, if you will, like the, the comfort of the world, to get uncomfortable for the sake of him and for the sake of other people. And so since we were talking about what it means to be uncomfortable, we thought, hey, the next logical place to go is politics. <laughs> because what's more uncomfortable than politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, <laughs> and if you, I mean, if you think uh, there, we joke about this, but it's often the reality. The thing that you're you're told never to talk about with your family, or well, two things, if you're going to be around the Thanksgiving table, and what are those two things? Religion and politics. So we thought, hey, as a family, why don't we talk about both <laughs> at the same time? That'll be fun. <laughs> Pass the cranberry sauce. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, let's let's just talk about maybe the current political climate. What what comes to mind for you when you think of what it when you think of politics and the political climate that we are in as a country right now? What words come to mind for you? Devastating. <laughs> the word really? Yeah, with a whole bunch of question marks behind it. Yeah. A mess. Divisive, yeah. yeah. Gerrymandering. 
Twitter is social media. Conflict. Embarrassing. Innuendos, yeah. Yeah. Not speaking our minds, but kind of insinuating things often. What else? Scary. Hostile. Nobody's using positive words. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Yeah, when we think of the political climate of our day, it's not usually a positive thing that we're thinking about. It's charged. There, there is almost like this negative electricity that's, and everyone's afraid to even engage because when you do, it ends up blowing up into a big thing and you say something small and it snowballs and it turns into bigger things which then cause conflict between people and all of a sudden you're at the throats of people that you thought you were friends with before and, and, and this is the day in which we live. There's divisiveness where, where we don't get along with people that have differing viewpoints than us and, and we're so dogmatic about our particular viewpoint and our particular opinion that we think nobody can change what I have to, what, what I think and what I say. And so it's, it, I mean, even our social media is constructed in such a way where, and I just saw some articles this week about that, where, where some things like Facebook are mathematically algorithms so that you see and are closest friends with the people that agree most with you. And so increasingly, even though we have access to a range of opinions, we're becoming more narrow-minded than we've ever been before. Isn't that interesting? Now, we're not alone uh, in having that kind of environment. In fact, Jesus had a very similar environment. And there's one particular case at the end, at the very end of his life where he is in a powder keg situation where the political pressures are so so uh, present, so pushing on him that it, it looks like it's just going to result in a complete riot. Do you know the situation I'm referring to? Is actually when he was brought before his own trial. And so we're going to look at that. And, and it's uh, it's kind of nice that we get to look at this now. It's going to be on page 712 of your... Um, your uh, Bibles that we have under the seats here. But it's in Mark 15. And if you've been reading along in our Bible reading plan, if you've been participating in that, um, then you've just read this on Friday. And so what better, it should be completely fresh in your minds, right? Um, Because you've just read this. Now you probably didn't read it through the lens that we're going to read it through today, but that's why we're all here, okay? So we're going to read Mark 15, Uh, verses 1 to 15. This is the situation. Very early in the morning, the chief priests of the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus said. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And a man called um, Barabbas 
was in prison and the, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. I want you to just get a picture of this scene in your mind where there is a crowd who is, is, is crying out for blood. You have two uh, individuals standing trial potentially who are going to be executed, and Pilate in the middle of all of this trying to, to figure out what's up and what's down. And, and, and Jesus at the, at the center of all of this, and, and this is a politically charged rally. This is a demonstration. This is bordering on a riot. Now we don't often think of the Bible as having these kinds of scenes, but it's, it's incredibly relevant for the political age that we find ourselves in. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this passage through the lens of the three questions that Pilate asked Jesus and how Jesus responds to each of those. Because his response to each of those questions gives us huge, huge clues about what it means to see our political day through the lens of the gospel. Remember, if we're not using the gospel... We're using something else. So here's the three questions that Pilate asks. Are you the king of the Jews? Why aren't you fighting back? And what do we do with this king? And I think those three, Jesus' three answers to those things are going to give us an incredible um, lens to, to think through all this. So who's ready to abandon some comfort? All right, let's go. Are are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is the first question that Pilate asks him. And here's what Pilate is not asking him. He's not asking Jesus a theological question. He's not going, are you the Messiah that these Jews talk about? Or are you God in the flesh? Are you all of these things that we often think about Jesus through this lens of? Pilate doesn't care about any of those things. He's a politician. He's asking, are you a king? In other words, are you a political leader? Does your movement have any political ramifications? As a leader, will you have any impact on the political structures of our day? Jesus, what's your political agenda? That's what he's asking him. Hopefully you heard this a little bit, but it's critical that you see it, that Jesus doesn't give Pilate a straight answer, right? Right? Now, so is he scared to give him an answer? No, because when the religious people asked him the very same question, he said, oh yeah. Are you a king? Yes, and I'm coming on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. How's that for not being scared? (laughs) But now he's before Pilate and he doesn't give him an answer. Why not? Because he, he, he literally just dodges the question. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you said it. What, is, what does that mean? 
Jesus isn't giving a yes or a no. How do you interpret that? Well, one of the ways is that you can see that he's giving a yes and a no at the same time. Because Jesus could have said, no, Pilate, I'm not a political leader. I'm like Buddha. I'm just a spiritual leader. I'm leading a spiritual revolution. I want people to have internal peace and happiness. I'm no threat. I have no political aspirations at all. But he doesn't do that. On the other hand, he could have said, yes, I'm just like Muhammad. I'm here to usher in the kingdom of God in a, in a political way. I'm going to set up a state and we're going to rule over the world and bring in God's justice that way. And he doesn't do that either. His answer is, I am and I'm not at the same time. See, what I'm doing has vast political ramifications, but I'm not a political leader in the way that the world likes to define that position. I'm yes and I'm no. Okay, so what in the world does this have to do with the way that we think about politics? And the answer is everything. Everything. Because if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to understand what it's like to live out the gospel, then here's the deal. You can't fall into the ditch on either side of the road that Jesus is paving here. Because to do that is to remake him in our own image. And we can't do that. We have to understand Jesus on Jesus' terms. And if we don't, we get not just him wrong, but us and the way that we live out our lives wrong. Uh, There's another place, too, where Jesus is ambiguous about his political um, stance on things. And that's in Mark 12. You just read that, too where Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar, and and here's what happens in Mark 12. He says, Bring me a denarius, which was a day's wage for the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. And they brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, why were they amazed? Because Jesus said, whose image is this? And they said, well, obviously it's Caesar's. And we have a picture of one. This is what a denarius looks like. And and just so you know that we're talking about real people in a real day. Like this isn't just, um, this is history. But this is what the inscription would have said. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, it would have said, Tiberius, king, son of God. Do you know what Caesar's doing? See, the, the, the reason that they're arguing about taxes here is because of the poll tax or the head tax. And, and it was Caesar's way to exercise ultimate authority over his people. It wasn't the amount of money he was asking from them, but it was the, the, what he was saying through what he was asking. By saying, I want this coin from every single person, it means you were to give Caesar, the emperor, a government, your ultimate allegiance, and you you do not question his authority, his politics, his programs, or, or, or anything else. You give everything to Caesar. And Jesus comes along and he goes, well, whose image is on the silver? Well, Caesar, we'll give it back to him. You don't need it. 
His image is on it, so give it back to him. But God's image is on you and never give him. Never give Caesar your ultimate allegiance. Never bow to his ultimate authority. Never put your ultimate hope in Caesar's plan for the world. Don't do it. See, on the one hand, he's saying, pay your taxes. Be involved in the world. Be engaged in the political process. But if a government and its laws... These human laws ever contradict the law of God. God's law comes first and you bow to it and not to Caesar. One of the greatest examples that we have of somebody that's doing this is actually Martin Luther King. Um, He wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. It was one of his most famous works. And he went to jail because he was disobeying the laws of his state. The laws of his state... um, instituted segregation and he was protesting that and he broke several laws in order to show just how unjust some of these laws were, how much they degraded human beings. And so he was protesting the segregation and the racism in the South by peacefully going to jail. And he took incredible flack, not just from from anybody, but from Christians from pastors of all people who who came to him and said, how dare you break laws? If you're a Christian, you should be a law-abiding citizen. You shouldn't question the government. And here's his response. It's straight off of Jesus' playbook. He says this, one may ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what's the difference between the two, you might ask? How does one determine whether a law is, is just or unjust? And here's his answer. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Any law that uplifts, listen to this, any law that uplifts human personhood is just. Any law that degrades human personhood is unjust. And then he goes on to say later, but one, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Isn't that exactly what he did? Willingly going to jail, openly talking about how the unjust laws were unjust in the sight of God, loving those who disagreed with him, and paying the penalty when he did so. See, what he's saying is on the one hand, if the law contradicts the law of God, if it degrades humanity, if it harms image bearers, then fight it. Don't shrink back. Don't recede into the woodwork. In other words, be engaged with what's happening in the world. Don't plug your fingers in your ears when you see injustice. Get involved. But on the other hand, don't think that the only way to change the world is through political power. Do you see the balancing act that he's doing? See, in Martin Luther King's day, there, 
just as ours, there were people on both sides of the spectrum. There are people that said, let's not get involved, and then there are people that say, let's put all of our hope in the political process. And those same groups of people existed in Jesus' day too. Because on the one hand, you had the Essenes, who were the withdraw people. Do you ever hear, how many of you have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were scrolls that were found in caves uh, in the complete wilderness around the Dead Sea. And, and the Essenes didn't just stash their their scrolls there, they lived there. And what were they doing there? They, they were pulling as far away as they possibly could from the injustices of Rome. They're saying, we want nothing to do with that. We're going to go find a cabin in the woods and we're going to live there off the grid. That's the Essenes. We're just going to go and be holy. I mean, it sounds so altruistic, right? It sounds like, wow, you know? Maybe I would be better off if I just disconnected from the world and went to a happy place and just lived there out the rest of my life. And Jesus is critiquing those people. But on the other hand, you had the zealots, and they were the opposite. They said, not only are we going to be engaged, but we're going to take power and we're going to rule in God's name. We're going to be God's kingdom on earth, and we're going to do it through political influence. We're the moral majority, and if we get in power, we'll make Israel great again. Which one are you? What are you prone to? Are you prone to be like the Essenes where you just disengage and you say, no, I want nothing to do with it? Or are you prone to be like a zealot that says, not only am I going to be involved, but my whole well-being as an individual rises and falls on which political party is in power, whether that's Democrat or Republican. Jesus is saying, I want my people to resist their government whenever and wherever that government is in contradiction to the heart of God. I want my people to stand up for God and his, his heart in the world and the people that he loves. But do not ever put your hope for the future, your hope for the world in a, in a political power system because that's not how I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God. Don't withdraw, but don't dilute yourself to think that policies and politics are the way to make a country Christian again. Be engaged, but don't be overzealous. And never believe the lie that your political party can somehow save the world because only Jesus has the power to do that. See, is Jesus a political leader or not? See, if you only say no, then you miss out on the radical call of what it means to be an agent of gospel change in the world. You miss out. You'll live your life on the sidelines and you won't be part of what God is doing in the world. But if you say yes and only yes, then you're in danger of saying, and it's my party, my group, my way of thinking that's going to get it done. See, Jesus said, reject both. I'm neither, and I'm both. Don't make that mistake. Because political power is an insufficient vehicle for the kinds of changes I want to make in the world. So how does the gospel then create that kind of change? If it's not through political power, it's got to be through some other medium, right? If it's not going to be top-down, then what is it? 
And that's what leads us into our second question, because Pilate says, why aren't you fighting back? Why aren't you fighting back? Why, aren't you ref- you're, why are you refusing to counter the charges that are leveled against you? He says in verses 3 to 5, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Jesus, do you not understand what they're doing? They're marginalizing you. They're killing you. When are you going to start fighting back? When are you going to start playing by the world's rule book, Jesus? When are you going to take up worldly power and fight for yourself and the people that you love? And Jesus' answer is nothing. Now, again, why? Is he a coward? No. And we know he's not a coward because Pilate was amazed, which is actually a positive Greek word. Pilate isn't just standing there and going, you idiot. Like, like, come on, you know? Stop being such a pansy here. Get together and do it. He's not doing that. He's, he's saying, I can't believe this guy. I can't believe what he's doing. And I think what Pilate is is seeing is he's seeing the contrast between Jesus and his enemies. Because on the one hand, Jesus' enemies are frantic. They're so... They just can't even control their own minds. They're just whipping the crowd up into a frenzy because they think that Jesus is going to get off. Now, by contrast, how is Jesus? He's completely calm. When you think about political engagement, which one are you? Are you frantic and frenzied because you're so worried about the world and which way it's going to go and who's going to get in power and and how's our country going to look? Are you just so full of fear and full of trepidation or are you like Jesus who just says, I'm in control and therefore I can be calm? I'm not saying you need to be in control. I'm saying there there is one who is. But then on the other hand, so so that's the first, Jesus is calm, but it's... The second thing that that Pilate sees is that on the one hand, you have Jesus' enemies who are using their power to harm him. They're using their their political muscle to bring Jesus down. And what is Jesus doing? He's laying down all of his power to befriend enemies, not to harm them. To forgive people. And this this is upside down from every revolution that's ever come along in our world. Because every revolution goes like this. You take power and you destroy your enemies, right? You get into office, you elect your friends, and then all the policy now becomes about your way of life to the exclusion of the other. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's upside down. I'm going to start a revolution through loving and forgiving my enemies, through making my enemies my friends. Uh, those things that Jesus displays in, in this politically charged environment, it wasn't just, I mean, it looks like the crowd is just completely against Jesus and nobody's going nobody's gonna to be transformed at all, but there were some who were. Because Jesus' disciples are watching him lay his life down for his enemies, and do you know what effect that had on them? It made them do the same thing. Because one of the things that we see in the lives of Jesus' first followers shortly after he lived 
was that same peace and that same pattern for using their power and influence in the lives of other people. And this didn't just have an effect on a little band of people. This completely revolutionized the Roman society within 300 years. There's a great book called The Rise of Christianity that I really recommend that you read at some point if you're interested in these things. It's by a man named Rodney Stark. And he, he's trying to pick at some of the reasons why the gospel revolutionized the Roman pagan world. And what he's asking is, how, how did these followers of Jesus address the political turmoil of their day? What was their pattern? Why was it that they were able to, to completely upend a Roman system that was hostile to Jesus and hostile to the gospel? And he comes up with four things. And they're revolutionary. They were revolutionary then and they're revolutionary now. First, he says that this community of of Christians had a radical treatment towards women. A radical treatment towards women. In Roman society, it was common that there were 140 males for every 100 females. Do you know why? Because female babies upon being born were tossed out into the streets as trash. Because parents would look at that. They had no access to abortion in that day. It was too unsafe. It was too unsanitary. It was too dangerous for the mom. So they would have the baby, see that it's a girl, and go, yeah, this isn't going to, this isn't going to further our family. This isn't going to help us socially. This isn't going to help us economically. And so they tossed her out. And they'd leave her on the streets. Now, here's the question. What did the followers of Jesus do? What was their response to to this injustice? Did they petition the government for more social programs? They say, hey, Caesar, come on, man. Get it together. Institute a program. Monitor the streets. Pick up the babies. Put the parents in jail. You have the authority to do this. No, they didn't do that. Did they protest outside the homes of the families that did this and call them names and shame them? No, they didn't. Did they watch this being done and say, you know, those are someone else's babies. This really doesn't affect me. No. They didn't do that either. You know what they did? They took the babies in And they adopted those children into their families and gave them a home. In other words, they committed themselves to solving the problem rather than just critiquing the problem. It wasn't just infants, though. It was was women of all walks of life. Because in Rome, you know what else was common? Women in Rome were required to be sexually faithful to their husbands. If they weren't, the penalty was death. But men could have mistresses and and be all kinds of of promiscuous. It was a double standard. You know what happened when those families came into the Christian community? The Christian community said, no. No, this cannot stand. It will not be. Husbands, you don't treat your wives this way. You lay them down for her as Christ laid his life down for you. You treat her as your one and only and you give yourself for her flourishment. In Rome, it was also common for women to be required 
to be remarried within two years of their husband's death. Because in Roman society, they thought, well, there's no reason for a woman to live if she's not married to a man. The Christian community said, we will take in those widows. And we will be the ones to provide for them so that they don't have to be remarried unless they want to. You see how radical this is? That women weren't just treated as second-class citizens or disposable or less than human. They were treated with dignity and honor. They were given a seat at the table. They said, you're valuable and we, we, we want to build community with you. And the result of that is that women rushed into the church rushed into to embrace Jesus because they were embraced as image bearers by his church. And, and the Christian community grew. Why? Because there were women in every part of every city and every socioeconomic bra- bracket that were both valued and through their valuing of image bearers of God, they were transformed. And they were the ones who transformed cities. So that treatment of the women. Second, treatment of the poor. One of the famous letters that we have from early Roman society is a letter from Emperor Julian who hated Christianity. And he hated how successful and growing this Christian community was. And he's trying to figure out why in the world are they so successful? And this is what he comes to. He essentially says, you know, our religion, the pagan philosophy, isn't prospering, but the Christian community is growing and growing and growing. Why don't we just realize that so much of their success is due to their radical care of the poor? I mean, because Christians, they don't just take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor too. And it's obvious to everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. In other words, why can't we do what those Christians are doing? They're outdoing the state in their care for the poor, and it's embarrassing says Emperor Julian. They don't just care for their own party, their own clique, their own way of life. They care for everyone. How about treatment of minorities? In Rome, there was incredible animosity, incredible suspicion and violence towards people of other races. Does this sound familiar? And yet it was the Christian community that was the most racially diverse group in their city. Because they, they didn't just know one another, they ate with one another, which was unheard of in that day. To eat with someone means that you shared something in common. And most people looked at someone from a different race and, we, and they would only look at the skin and they go, we have absolutely nothing in common. But Christians would not only get to know those people, but they would sit down to meals together with those people and say, we have so much in common. Now, why were they able to do that? Because they didn't see anyone as, as just being a solely sole product of their ethnicity or their racial identity or their social identity or the poor choices that they've made to get into the city of Rome. They didn't, they didn't primarily ask, what did you do to get here? They asked, who are you? And, and the answer was always, you're an image bearer of God. And because you're an image bearer of God, you have worth and value in the eyes of our creator. Therefore, I will welcome you at my table. Now, here's, let me give you a pop quiz. Is the Christian agenda in Rome conservative or liberal? 
<laughs> Is it Republican or Democrat? I mean, because on the one hand, they're against infanticide and abortion, which seems very conservative. They're for monogamy in marriage. Huh, that's amazing. Seems very conservative, doesn't it? But then on the other hand, they're very pro-women's rights and they're very pro-immigrant and they're very racially diverse and all of that sounds incredibly liberal, doesn't it? Is Christianity political? Yes and no. Is it conservative? Yes and no. Is it liberal? Yes and no. Am I answering any questions for you this morning? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> That's the, that's the, that was the right response, Tim. I was appreciated that. I'm glad we talked about that beforehand. <clears throat> if you think that Jesus' agenda completely lines up with one and not the other, you don't know your history and you don't understand the gospel. Jesus is both and he's neither, which means you can't fit him into your preconceived political box anymore. He won't let you do it. And it also means you you know that you've come to know Jesus when you can't be pegged in one box or the other either. If your neighbors can come to you and say, yeah, that guy is a, is is just completely conservative all the way. I mean, he just votes right down the line and all of his agendas line up with the political party. I don't think you're considering what it's like to be radically part of Jesus' revolution. Because it's not one or the other and it's both at the same time. I mean, it's not only that, but I mean, if you want to get radical, I mean, that's the fourth thing that Stark talks about, which is the treatment of the sick and the dying. Because he says it, there was an incredible public health crisis in most of the Roman cities before the advent of modern medicine, and plagues were common. And there was a particularly bad one in 165 AD, where some reports say that up to one-third of the population of the city passed away. And you know what the people of the city did? They left. They would leave the city and many times they would leave their sick family members behind so that they wouldn't get infected themselves, but not the followers of Jesus. See, because when everybody else left, they stayed. And they would deal with the problem and they would take care of the sick even though it was incredibly dangerous for them to do so. And Stark says this. He says, Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many died, for they were infected by their neighbors. But when they departed life, they did so serenely and cheerfully, accepting their pains. Many Christians, listen to this, in curing and nursing their neighbors, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? You know, what's the common thread in all of these things? Treatment of women, treatment of the poor, treatment of minorities, treatment of the sick and dying. In every single one of these cases, the hallmark of Christian activity, the hallmark of their political engagement in the world was that they loved people. 
They looked at the sick and the marginalized and the unborn. They, they, they engaged with the needs of their city and they poured themselves out for those needs. They didn't just criticize the government for not getting involved. They didn't just take to social media and blast others for being part of the problem. They didn't just say, well, if our party wins the election, then we can finally do something about the brokenness of the world. In other words, they did the exact opposite of what most Christians do today. The exact opposite. They took the power that they had, as little as it was, and because of Jesus, they spent that power away to fight for the law of God when it conflicted with the law of man. They used all of their influence to uplift human personality just the way Martin Luther King did. Now, when you think of political engagement, what kind of revolution do you believe will change the world? What are you putting your stock in? What are you putting your hope in? You'll know because of what you spend your time doing. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's so true, isn't it? If you want to know and you want to see what people value, you look at two things. You look at where they spend their dollars and where they spend their time. And you can say anything that you want to the contrary, but those two things are true indicators every single time. So what do you spend your time doing? Do you spend your time as a resounding gong on Facebook where you're convincing no one except yourself? Or do you, like the first Christians say, we have one life to give and we will give it as revolutionaries to Jesus' agenda in the world? We're not just going to talk about the problem and who's to blame. We're going to join Jesus in an upside-down revolution. You might say, like, I don't know. That sounds pretty idealistic to me. That sounds kind of pie in the sky, Jay. You're not being realistic. Because I, I, you know, you can talk all you want about getting involved in the problem, but it's, it's really the, the people at the top that have all the power. And if we don't have the right people in the right positions, then it'll never happen. Yeah, I understand that. Um, but you're missing a part of the story if you think that way. Um, Because one of the most interesting parts of this story is actually that there are two Jesuses here. Did you know that? There's Jesus of Nazareth and there's Barabbas. Guess what his first name is? Jesus. They're both named Jesus. Jesus. Which means you have two Jesuses on your hands. So, so one way or another, someone's dying and, and the other is going to start a revolution. And the crowd has to pick. <laughs> they have to invest themselves into one of these Jesuses and follow that Jesus to its eventual end. And one represents the system that we all think is going to win. And that's not Jesus of Nazareth. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He, he was a guy who was involved in political murder. In other words, he tried to overthrow the government through force, through the sword. Top down. Let's get the right people in the right positions and they will govern with all authority and lead us into a better day. And then you have Jesus of Nazareth 
who's starting a revolution not through his inauguration, but through his execution. Which one are you going to follow? You can't choose both. See, <laughs> and you, here's how you know that one is going to be effective and the other one doesn't. Who is it that the, the, the political leaders think is the greater threat to their way of life? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Otherwise, they would have had Barabbas killed and Jesus released. But who are they stirring up to say crucify him? It's not Barabbas. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Which means that they knew something that we often miss, which is that Jesus was the bigger threat to the world system. They knew it. Which is why they were trying to stamp him out. That's the whole reason they had him killed. They thought that if we can just have him crucified, then this whole revolution of love that Jesus is trying to inaugurate as he heals the sick and does all these things, it's going to be dealt with. It's going to be dead forever. But it was just getting started. They had no idea the revolution that Jesus was kicking off. His death was the spark that lit the flame that brought down the Roman system of government within 300 years. How's that for a revolution? Which one are you going to put your hope in, family? It can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. Now, how do you join then? What does it look like to join this revolution? How do you actually live this, live this out like the first church did? How do you pour yourself out with this sense of inner peace in this new pattern? And that's the last question. What do we do with the king? Because Pilate turns to the crowd and he says, what do we do with him? And they say, crucify him. And so he wanted to satisfy the crowd, so he had Barabbas released, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. See, the, the, what's happening here is that you have a guilty man and you have an innocent man. And the crowd says, switch him. They know Jesus is innocent, but they say, I want you to substitute the innocent for the guilty and the guilty for the innocent. And then Pilate asks, well, what has he done? And they ignore the question. They just, uh, we're, we can't even tell you, just crucify him. We want the guilty one to be freed and we want the innocent one to be made guilty. And Mark is setting this up and he's saying, this is what the gospel is about. He who had no sin becomes sin so that we who were guilty could become what he is and stand in God's presence. He was treated with the penalty that we deserve. Now, as soon as I say that, this is what's happening in your head. Jay, I've heard this before. I've heard this. This is old news. It's good news, but it's old news. Aha. But this idea isn't just the answer to how you get forgiveness. It's not just the answer to how you become a Christian. It's not just involved in the spiritual aspects of your life. This is the answer to how you give your life away, like those early Christians did. Because the early Christians, they didn't just look to Jesus as their example. 
their revolution leader. They didn't just say, I'll follow you because I see what you're doing. They understood that Jesus was doing it for them. That they were sick and dying and Jesus took their place so that they could be well, which is why they could do it for others. And and when you know this, when you believe it, it, it radically transforms the way that you operate in the world. It does. And it does so in two ways. The first way is that because of the gospel, you can no longer be a self-righteous cynic. You just can't anymore. You can't look out at the world and you go, they're the problem and I'm not. You can't do it. Because you realize that in this story, you have Jesus, you have Barabbas, and you have the crowd. And so you can only be one of those three characters in the story. And guess who you're not? You and I are not Jesus in the story. We're in need of a pardon. We're in need of salvation, which means we're either Barabbas and we've contributed to the harm of the world in very real ways in which God comes and forgives us of our sin, or we're the crowd, which is just as bad because you're, you're complicit in what Barabbas is doing. You're sponsoring what he's doing in the world. You're saying, I don't want anything to do with it, or I'm going to help you along the way, which means you're part of the issue, and so am I. No one's on the sidelines. All of us are involved. All of us have blood on our hands. All of us are guilty And if that's the case, then the problems of the world, the divisiveness and the dogmatism, the lack of care for the downtrodden, the closed-mindedness, it's not just other people's sins. It's ours too. It's in my heart. And I need forgiveness for those things. Because I haven't done what I should. And Jesus, because of the grace of God, died for a wretch like me. Now, what does that do to you when you actually believe that? It it means that you can no longer feel self-righteous indignation for people that disagree with your positions. You can't make enemies out of other people because Jesus treated his enemies like you as a friend. It means that we can stand up for what we believe is the heart of God when our government is out of line, but we also feel deep pain and longing to win over others who don't see the world the way that we do. It means we're not just out to win arguments, we're out to win friends, we're out to win brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is our main and primary objective in the world. See, when you know the, the, the Gospels, I won't say condemnation, but conviction of your sin then that leads you to incredible humility and respect for people that differ from you. It turns you into somebody that looks to seek peace and unity, but who also looks to Jesus as being the answer and not your political party. So so it removes the ability for you to be a self-righteous cynic. And what does it put in its place? It puts the power to become a self-sacrificing servant. Because now you realize that Jesus laid his life down for you. That though you should be guilty, you are now innocent. And that substitution changes the way that you deal with everyone. You you no longer look to condemn people. You look to save them. 
or at least understand them. I mean, so let's get practical. What does that mean? It means because of the gospel, because of the fact that I've been set free from my sin, I I can look at the undocumented immigrant and I can say with complete honesty and clarity, I was justly deported from the kingdom of God. I had a home and God had every right to remove me. But the king of that realm became a refugee for me. So now I seek to understand where you're coming from. And I don't first and foremost primarily ask, how did you get here and are you a drain on my society? Because I was a drain on Jesus and he paid the penalty for me. And so in whatever way I can, in whatever way God calls me to, I will seek to understand and provide a home for you. It's because of the gospel we can say to the mom who's considering abortion that we understand what it's like to live without hope and without options because our sin was a sentence we could not bear. We had no way out. And we had no help and no hope until the Son of God, God's own Son, left his home and his Father so that I could have a home and a place to live. Which means if I'm thinking through this rightly, that I won't just critique you for your decisions, I will join you in the struggle. And if you choose to deliver then we will together be a source of help to give you options for your family in a way that you thought was never possible before. And if you choose not to go through with the delivery, then there is no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus because all of our sin has been washed away and because Jesus paid the penalty for us, we can stand before God in the righteousness that he clothes us with and feel a a nude sense of forgiveness and freedom that we've never experienced before. We mourn the loss of the baby, but we mourn what that loss has done to the mom at the same time. Is that conservative or liberal? Yes and no. Are you seeing politics and political engagement through the lens of the gospel? You are, and you know you are, when you are no longer a self-righteous cynic, but now because of the gospel, a self-sacrificing servant. You're an upside-down revolutionary who follows in the footsteps of Jesus and Martin Luther King and all those Roman Christians that brought down an empire. It's a different way of seeing the world, isn't it? You can't live your life in black and white. You can only live it through the color of the gospel. Because it's only when you see Jesus being led to his execution so that you can be set free that you'll truly operate as an upside-down revolutionary in the world. Because you've been transferred out of the kingdom of this world. It's no longer your only hope. 
So now you can go back into this world and love people sacrificially, both enemies and friends, the way Jesus loves you. That's radical, right? Um, I realize that uh, I've probably stirred up more than I've settled for you. (laughs) I've stirred up a lot for myself this week. Um, And so I don't often do this, but I want to do this for today. If you, you, you just take incredible issue with something I've said, or you think that I've said something or didn't say something that I should have said, um, you can come and talk to me afterwards. So I'm going to provide space to do that. Instead of hanging out in the back and just saying, hey, thanks for being here as you leave, um, I want to actually give room for a conversation. So um, if that's a couple people, we'll do it up here. If it's more than a couple people, we can go downstairs. But one way or another, I just want to make sure uh, that you hear a heart of just wanting the things that God wants for you. Not condemning, but challenging. I hope that's what has come from today. So I just want to encourage you. He died to set you free. And so now you can join his revolution. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you so radically came into this world for cynics like us, for divisive people like us, for dogmatic people like us. Um, For wishy-washy people like us. And you took our place, which means we, we now live by a new code. We're now set free to engage the world in a new way. We're going to need your help to do that, God. We can't do it without you. So help us, Lord, not just to follow in your footsteps, but to be empowered by your spirit. Because the world needs this hope. And you, in your mystery and in your grace, have chosen the church to be the hope of the world. That is a task that we are not equal to. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.